Today I'm speaking with David Chalmers. David is a philosopher at NYU and also at the Australian National University, and he's the co-director of the Center for Mind, Brain, and Consciousness at NYU. David, as you'll hear, though we've never met, was instrumental in my turning my mind toward philosophy and science, ultimately, because of the work he began doing on the topic of consciousness in the early 90s. And uh, I found it fascinating to talk to David. His interests and intuitions in philosophy align with my own to a remarkable degree. We spend most of our time talking about consciousness and what it is and why it is so difficult to understand scientifically, conceptually. We talk about the hard problem of consciousness, which is a phrase he introduced into philosophy that has been very useful in shaping the conversation here. At least it's been useful for those of us who think that there really is a hard problem that resists any kind of easy neurophysiological solution or computational solution. We talk about artificial intelligence and the possibility that the universe is a simulation and other fascinating topics, some of which can seem so bizarre or abstract as to not have any real tangible importance. But I I would urge you not to be misled here. I think all of these topics will be more and more relevant in the coming years as we build devices which, if they're not in fact conscious, will seem conscious to us. And as we confront the prospect of augmenting our own conscious minds by integrating our brains with machines more and more directly, and even copying our minds onto uh, the hard drives of the future, all of these arcane philosophical problems will become topics of immediate and pressing personal and ethical importance. David is certainly one of the best guides I know to the relevant terrain. So now it's with great pleasure that I bring you David Chalmers. Well, I'm here with philosopher David Chalmers. David, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be talking with you. You know, I don't think we've ever met. Are you aware of whether or not we've met? I, f- I feel like we've, we've met by email, but... I don't think so. I've had uh, emails, a uh, couple of emails back and forth over the years, and uh, with Annika, your wife as well, but yeah. uh, never in person that I recall. Yeah, you know, because I, I feel the reason why I'm confused about this is because, and this is almost certainly something you don't know, but you um, served uh, quite an important intellectual role in my life. I, I went to one of those early Tucson conferences on consciousness. Oh, I didn't know that. I think it was probably 95. Was it was 94 the, the first one? Yeah, 94 was the first small one with about 300 people. Then it got really big in 96 with about 2,000 people. I think I went to 95 and, and probably 96 as well. And I, I had dropped out of school and was, I guess you could say, looking for some direction in life. And I, I became very interested in the conversations that were happening in the philosophy of mind. I think probably the first thing I saw was some of the sparring between Dan Dennett and, and John Searle. Then I noticed you in the Journal of Consciousness Studies. And then I think I, I just saw an, an ad probably in the Journal for, of Consciousness Studies for the Tucson conference and showed up. And, and I, I quite distinctly remember your talk there and your articulation of the hard problem of consciousness. Mm-hmm really just made me want to do philosophy, and, and which led very directly into my wanting to know more about science and sent me back to the ivory tower and 
I think a significant percentage of my getting a PhD in neuroscience and and continuing to be interested in in this issue was the result of just seeing that the conversation you started in Tucson more than twenty years ago. Okay, well, I'm really pleased to uh, to hear that. I had uh, I had no idea. Yeah, um, might have been the '96 conference. If was Dan Dennett there? You said I. You know, I don't know if I, I don't recall if Dan was there. I I, I went to Bo- I, I've gone to at least two of them, mm-hmm. and they were in quick succession. And I think I think Roger Penrose was there. I, I remember Stuart Hameroff mm-hmm. talking at least about their thesis. And it was a fascinating time. Yeah, that's the event that uh, people call the Woodstock of, uh, of consciousness, getting everyone together for the kind of, you know, getting the band together for the first time. It was really a, it was a crazy conference. It was a whole lot of fun. It was the first time I'd met a lot of these people too, myself, actually. Oh, interesting. It was very influential for me. I feel like I am a bad judge of how familiar people are with the problem of consciousness because I have been so steeped in it and and fixated on it for now decades. So I'm I'm always surprised that people find this a novel problem and difficult to even notice as a problem. So let's start at the beginning and let's just talk about what consciousness is. I mean, what what do you mean by consciousness and and how would you distinguish it from the other topics that it's usually conflated with, like self-awareness and behavioral report and access and, and all the rest. I mean, it's awfully hard to define consciousness, but I at least like to start by saying consciousness is the subjective experience of the mind and the world. It's basically what it feels like from the first person point of view to be thinking and perceiving and judging and so on. So when I look out at a scene like I'm doing now, out my window, there are trees and there's grass and a pond and so on. Well, there's a whir of information processing where all this stuff, you know, photons in my retina send a signal up the optic nerve to my brain. Eventually, I might say something about it. That's all of a level of functioning and behavior. But there's also really crucially something it feels like from the first person point of view. I might have an experience of a of the colors, a certain greenness of the green, a certain reflection on the pond. This is a little bit like the inner movie in the, uh, in the head. And the crucial problem of consciousness, for me at least, is this subjective part, what it feels like from the inside. This we can distinguish from our questions about, say, behavior and about functioning. People sometimes use the word consciousness just for the fact that, for example, I'm awake and responsive. That's something that can be understood straightforwardly in terms of behavior. and There are going to be mechanisms for how I'm responding and so on. So I like to call those problems um, of consciousness the easy problems, the ones about how we behave, how we respond, how we function. What I like to call the hard problem of consciousness is the one about how it feels from the first person point of view. Yeah, there was another very influential articulation of this problem, which I would assume influenced you as well, which was Thomas Nagel's essay, What Is It Like to Be a Bat? And the formulation he gave there is, if it's like something to be a creature or a system processing information, whatever it's like, even if it's something we can't understand, the fact that it is like something, the fact that there's an internal, subjective, qualitative character to the thing. The fact that if you could switch places with it, it wouldn't be synonymous with the lights going out. That fact, the fact that it's like something to be a bat, is the fact of consciousness in the case of a bat or in any other system. 
I know people who are not sympathetic with that formulation just think it's a kind of tautology or it's it's just a it's a question begging formulation of it but as a rudimentary statement of what consciousness is I've always found that to be an attractive one do you have any any thoughts on that yeah I find it's a uh, that's about as good a definition as we're going to get for consciousness the idea is roughly that a system is conscious if there's something it's like to be that system. So there's something it's like to be me. Right now, I'm conscious. There's nothing it's like, presumably, to be this glass of water on my desk. If there's nothing it's like to be that glass of water on my desk, then it's not conscious. Likewise, some of my mental states, you know, my seeing uh, the green leaves right now, there's something it's like for me to see the green leaves. So that's a conscious state for me. But maybe there's some unconscious language processing of syntax going on in my head that doesn't feel like anything to me or some motor processes in the cerebellum. And those might be states of me, but they're not conscious states of me because there's nothing it's like for me to undergo those states. So I find this is a definition that's very vivid and useful for me. That said, it's just a bunch of words like anything. And for some people, so for some people, this bunch of words, I think, is very useful in activating the idea of consciousness from the subjective point of view. Other people hear something different in that set of words, like, you say, what is it like? You're saying, what is it similar to? Well, it's like it's kind of similar to my brother, but it's different as well. You know, for those people, that set of words doesn't work. So what I've found over the years is it, it, this phrase of, of Nagel's is incredibly useful for at least some people in getting them on to the problem, although it doesn't work for everybody. What do you make of the fact that so many scientists and philosophers find this the the hardness of the hard problem, and I think I should probably get you to state why it's so hard, or why why you you have distinguished the hard from the easy problems of consciousness. But what what do you make of the fact that people find it difficult to concede that there's that there's a problem here? Because it's, I mean, this is just a, a common phenomenon. I mean, you, you, there are people like Dan Dennett and and the Churchlands and other philosophers who just kind of ram their way past the mystery here and declare that it's a pseudo-mystery. And I, you, know, you and I have both had the experience of witnessing people either seem to pretend that, that this problem doesn't exist or they acknowledge it only to change the subject and then pretend that they've addressed it. And so let's state what the hard problem is and perhaps you can say why it's, why it's not immediately compelling to everyone that it's, in fact, hard. Yeah, I mean, there's obviously a huge amount of disagreement in this area. I don't know what your sense is. My sense is that most people, at least, have got a reasonable appreciation of the fact that there's a big problem here. Of course, what you do um, after that is very different in different cases. Some people think, well, it's only an initial problem, and we, can, we ought to kind of see it as an illusion and get past it. But yeah, this, to state the problem, I find it useful to first start by distinguishing the easy problems, which are problems basically about the performance of functions from the hard problem, which is about experience. So the easy problems are, you know, how is it, for example, we discriminate information in our environment and respond appropriately? How does the brain integrate information from different sources and bring it together to make a judgment and control behavior? How indeed do we voluntarily control behavior to respond in a controlled way to our environment? How does our brain monitor its own states? These are all big mysteries. And actually, neuroscience 
has not gotten all that far on some of these uh, of these problems. They're um, they're all quite difficult. But in those cases, we have a pretty clear sense of what the research program is and what it would take to explain them. It's basically a matter of finding some mechanism in the brain that, for example, is responsible for discriminating the information and controlling the behavior. And although it's uh, it's pretty hard work finding the mechanism, we're on a path to doing that. So a neural mechanism for discriminating information, a computational mechanism for the brain to monitor its own states, um, and and so on. So for the easy problems, they at least fall within the standard methods of the brain and cognitive sciences. We're basically, we're trying to explain some kind of function and we just find a mechanism. The hard problem, what makes the hard problem of experience hard is it doesn't really seem to be a problem about behavior or about functions. You could explain, you could in principle imagine explaining all of my behavioral responses to a given stimulus and how my brain discriminates and integrates and monitors itself and controls. You could explain all that with, say, a neural mechanism, and you might not have touched the central question, which is why does it feel like something from the first person point of view? That just doesn't seem to be a problem about explaining behaviors and explaining functions. And as a result, the usual methods that work for us so well in the brain and cognitive sciences, finding a mechanism that does the job, just doesn't obviously apply here. We're going to get correlations. We're certainly got finding correlations between processes in the brain and bits of consciousness, an area of the brain that might light up when you see red or when you, uh, when you feel pain. But nothing there seems yet to be giving us an explanation. Why does all that processing feel like something from the inside? Why, does it, why doesn't it go on just in the dark, as if we were giant robots um, or zombies without any subjective experience? So that's the hard problem. And I'm inclined to think that most, you know, most people at least recognize there is at least the appearance of a big problem here. From that point, people react in different ways. Someone like Dan Dennett says, ah, it's all an illusion or a confusion and one that we need to, uh, to get past. And I mean, I respect that line. I think it's a hard enough problem that we need to be exploring every, uh, every avenue here. And one avenue that's very much worth exploring is the, the view that it's an illusion. But there is something kind of faintly unbelievable about the whole idea that the data of consciousness here are an illusion. To me, they're the most real thing in the, uh, the universe, you know, the feeling of pain, the experience of vision or of thinking. So it's a very, um, it's a very hard line to take the line that Dan Dennett takes. He taught, he wrote a book, Consciousness Explained, back in the early 90s, where he tried to take that line. It was, very, it was a very good and very influential book. But I think most people have, have found that at the end of the day, it just doesn't seem to do justice to the phenomenon. To be fair to Dan, it's been a long time since I've looked at that book. I remember, that was actually, might, might have been the first book I read on, on this topic back when it came out, I think in 91. Does he actually say, and this is strange, I, I, I'm very aligned with you and people like Thomas Nagel on these questions in, in the philosophy of mind, and yet have had this alliance with Dan for many years around the issue of religion. And, and, and so it's, I've spent a lot of time with Dan. We, we've never really gotten into a conversation on consciousness. Perhaps we've been wary of colliding on this topic, and, and we, ha we had a somewhat unhappy collision on the topic of free will. Is it true that he says that 
consciousness is an illusion, or is it just, it's somehow just the 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 hardness of the hard problem is illusory? That there's a, a the hard problem is categorically different from the easy problems. I I, I I completely understand how he would want to push that intuition, but as I've said before, and I really don't see another way of seeing this. It seems to me that consciousness is the one thing in this universe that can't be an illusion. I mean, even if we are confused about everything, even if we are even confused about the the qualitative character of our experience in many important respects, so that we're not we're not subjectively incorrigible. You can be wrong about what it's like to be you in terms of the details, but which is to say you can become a better judge of what it's like to be you in each moment. But the fact that it is like something to be you, the fact that, that something seems to be happening, even if this is only a dream or you're a brain in a vat or you're otherwise misled by everything, there is something seeming to happen. And that seeming is all you need to assert the absolute undeniable reality of consciousness. I mean, that is the, the, that is the fact of consciousness every bit as much as any other case in which you might assert its existence. So I, I just don't see how a claim that consciousness itself is an illusion can ever fly. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, I'm with, with you on this. I think Dan's views have actually evolved a bit over the years on this. Back in the maybe the 1980s or so, he used to say things that sounded much more strongly like consciousness doesn't exist, it's an illusion, he wrote a paper called On the Absence of Phenomenology, saying there really isn't such a thing as what we call phenomenology, which is basically just another word for consciousness. He wrote another one called Quining Qualia, which said we, need to, we just need to get rid of this whole idea of qualia, which again is a word that philosophers use for the qualitative character of experience, the thing that makes you know, seeing red different from seeing green. They seem to involve different qualities. At one point, Dan was inclined to say, oh, that's just a mistake. There's nothing there. Over the years, I think he's found that people find that line just a bit too strong to be believable. It's just, it just seems frankly unbelievable from the first person point of view that there are no qualia. There is no feeling of red versus the feeling of green, or there is no consciousness. So he's evolved in the direction of saying that, uh, yeah, there's consciousness, but it's really just in the sense of, for example, there's functioning and behavior and information encoded. There's not really consciousness in this strong phenomenological sense that drives the hard problem. I mean, in a way, it's a bit of a verbal relabeling of the old line, you know, because you must be familiar. I know you're familiar with these debates over free will, where one person says, uh, there is no free will. And the other person says, well, there is free will, but it's just this much more deflated thing, which is compatible with determinism. And it's basically two ways of saying the same thing. I think Dan used to say there is no consciousness. Now he says, well, there is consciousness, but only in this very deflated sense. And I think ultimately it's another way of saying the same thing. He doesn't think there is consciousness in that strong subjective sense that poses the hard problem. I feel super sensitized to the prospect of people not following the plot here because it's if it's the first time someone is is hearing these concerns, it's it's easy to just lose sight of what the actual subject is. So I just want to retrace a little bit of what you said, sketching the hardness of of the hard problem. So you have this the distinction between understanding function and understanding the fact that 
that experience exists. And so we have functions like you know, motor behavior or learning or visual perception. And it's very straightforward to think about explaining these in mechanistic terms. I mean, so you have something like vision. We can talk about the, the transduction of light energy into neurochemical events and then the mapping of the visual field onto the relevant parts of, in our case, the visual cortex. And this is very complicated, but it's not in principle obscure. The, the, the fact that it's, it's like something to see, however, remains totally mysterious no matter how much of this mapping you do. And if you imagine from the other side, if, if we built a robot that could do all the things we can, it seems to me that at no point in refining its mechanism would we have reason to believe that it's now conscious, even if it passes the Turing test. You see, so we could, I mean, this is actually one of the things that concerns me about AI. It seems one of the likely paths we could take is that we could build machines that seem conscious, and, and, and the effect will be so convincing that we will just lose sight of the problem. All of our intuitions that lead us to ascribe consciousness to other people and to certain animals will be played upon because we will build the machines so as to do that, and it will cease to seem philosophically interesting or even ethically appropriate to wonder whether there's something that it's like to be one of these robots. And yet, it seems to me that we, will, we still won't know whether these machines are actually conscious unless we've understood how consciousness arises in the first place, which is to say, unless we've solved the hard problem. Yeah, and I think we can, um, maybe we should distinguish the question of whether a system is conscious from how that consciousness is explained. I mean, even in the case of other people, well, they're behaving as if they're, they're conscious, and we tend to be pretty uh, confident that other people are conscious. So we don't really regard there as a, to be a question about whether other people are conscious. Still, I think it's consistent to have that attitude and still find it very mysterious, this fact of consciousness, and to be utterly puzzled about how we might explain it in terms of the brain. So I suspect that with machines, we may well end up, as you say, just finding it undeniable, very hard to deny that machine, even if there are machines hanging around with us, talking in a you know human-like way and reflecting on their consciousness, those machines are saying, hey, I'm really puzzled by this, uh, this whole consciousness thing, because I know I'm just a collection of silicon circuits, but it still feels like something from the inside. If machines are doing that, I'm going to be pretty convinced that they are conscious as I am conscious. But that won't make it any, any less mysterious. It'll, maybe it'll just make it all the more mysterious. How on earth could this machine be conscious, even though it's a collection of silicon circuits? Likewise, how on earth could I be conscious just as a result of these processes in my brain? It's not that I see anything intrinsically worse about silicon than about brain processes here. There just seems to be this kind of mysterious gap in the explanation in both cases. And of course, we can worry about other people too. There's a classic philosophical problem, the problem of other minds. How do you know that anybody else apart from yourself is conscious? You know, Descartes said, well, I'm certain of one thing. I'm conscious, I think, therefore I am. But that, only gets you, that only gets you one data point. It gets me to me being conscious. Actually, it gets me to me being conscious right now. Who knows if I was ever conscious in the past? Anything else beyond that has got to be something of an inference or an extrapolation. We end up taking for granted most of the time that other people are conscious, but you could try to raise questions there if you wanted to. And then as you move to questions about AI and robots, about animals and so on, the questions just become very fuzzy and murky. 
Yeah, I think the difference with AI or robots is that presumably we will build them, or we, we, we may, in, in fact, build them along lines that are not at all analogous to the emergence of, of our own nervous systems. And so if we follow the line we've taken, say, with like, you know, chess plane computers, where we have something which we don't even ha have any reason to believe is aware of chess, but it is all of a sudden the best chess player on earth and now will always be so. If we did that for a thousand different human attributes so that we created a very compelling case for its, its superior intelligence, it can function in every way we function better than we can, and we, and, and we have put this in some format so that it has the mimetic facial displays that we find attractive and compelling. We get out of the uncanny valley and, and these robots no longer seem weird to us. In fact, they detect our emotions better than we can detect the emotions of other people or than other people can detect ours. And so all of a sudden we are played upon by a system that is deeply unanalogous to our own nervous system. And, and then we will just, then I think it'll be somewhat mysterious whether or not this is conscious because we have, we have cobbled this thing together Whereas in our case, the reason why I don't think it's, it's parsimonious for me to be a solipsist and, and to say, well, maybe I'm the only one who's conscious is because there's this obviously deep analogy between how I came to be conscious and how you came to be conscious. So I, I have to then do further work of arguing that there's something about your nervous system or your situation in the universe that might not be a sufficient base of consciousness, and, and yet it is clearly in my own case. So to worry about other people or even other higher animals seems a stretch. At least it's, it's unnecessary and it's, it's only falsely claimed to be parsimonious. I think it's actually, it's, it's, you, you have to do extra work to doubt whether other people are conscious rather than just simply not attribute consciousness to them. How would you feel if we met Martians? Let's say they're intelligent Martians who are behaviorally very sophisticated and we turn out to be able to communicate with them about science and philosophy, but at the same time, they've evolved through a completely independent evolutionary process from us. So they got there in a, in a different way. Would you have the same kind of doubts about whether they might be conscious? Yeah, well, I think perhaps I would. It would be probably somewhere between our own case and whatever we might build along lines that we have no good reason to think track the emergence of, of consciousness in the universe. Well, this is actually a topic I wanted to, to raise with you, this, this issue of epiphenomenalism, because it is kind of mysterious. It's, it's, so the, the, the flip side of the hard problem, the fact that you can describe all of this functioning and you seem to never need to introduce consciousness in order to describe mere function, leaves you at the end of the day with the possible problem, which many people find deeply counterintuitive, which is that consciousness doesn't do anything, that it's just, it is an epiphenomenon, which is an analogy often given for this. It's like the, the smoke coming out of the smokestack of an old-fashioned locomotive. You know, it's, it's always associated with the progress of this train down the tracks, but it's not actually doing anything. It's, it's, it's a mere byproduct of the actual causes that are propelling the train. And so consciousness could be like the smoke rising out of the smokestack. It's not doing anything, and yet it's always here at a certain level of function. If I recall correctly, in your first book, you seem to 
be fairly sympathetic with epiphenomenalism. Talk about that a little bit. I mean, it's not epiphenomenalism is not a view that anyone feels any initial attraction for. The consciousness doesn't do anything. It sure seems to do so much. But there is this puzzle that pretty well for any bit of behavior you try to explain, it looks like there's the potential to explain it without invoking consciousness in this subjective sense. There'll be an explanation in terms of neurons or computational mechanisms of our various behavioral responses. I mean, the one place where, um, so at least starts to, you at least start to wonder, maybe consciousness doesn't have any function. Maybe it doesn't do anything at all. Maybe, for example, consciousness gives value and meaning to our lives, which is something we can talk about without actually doing anything. But then, you know, obviously, there are all kinds of questions. Uh, how and why would it have evolved? Not to mention, how is it that we come to be having this extended conversation about consciousness? Um, if consciousness isn't actually playing a role in the uh, in the causal loop. So in my first book, I at least tried on the idea of epiphenomenalism. It didn't come out saying this is definitely true, but tried to say, okay, well, if, if we're forced in that direction, that's uh, that's one way we can go. But, I mean, actually, we're in view. I mean, this is skipping ahead a few steps, is that either it's epiphenomenal or it's outside a physical system, but somehow playing a role in physics. Uh, that's another kind of more traditionally dualist possibility or third possibility consciousness is somehow built in at the very basic level of physics so to get consciousness to play a causal role you need to say some fairly radical things i'd like to track through each of those possibilities but to stick with epiphenomenalism for a moment you've touched on it in passing here but remind us of the the zombie argument that i don't know if that originates with you i it, it's not something that uh, i noticed before i heard you making it but the zombie argument really is the thought experiment that describes epiphenomenalism introduce the concept of a zombie and I, then i have a question about that so yeah the idea of zombies actually i mean it'd been out there for a for a while in philosophy uh before me, not to mention out there in the uh, in the popular culture, but uh, the zombies which play a role in philosophy are a bit different from the zombies that play a role in the movies or in the Haitian voodoo culture. Um, you know, the ones in the movies are all supposed to be... All the different kinds of zombies are missing something. The zombies in the movie are lacking uh, somehow life. They're, they're dead, but reanimated. The zombies in the, in the voodoo tradition are lacking some kind of free will. Well, the zombies that play a role in philosophy or lacking consciousness. And this is just a thought experiment, but the conceit is that we can at least imagine a being, at the very least, behaviorally identical to a normal human being, but without any consciousness on the inside at all, just acting and walking and talking in a perfectly human-like way without any consciousness. The extreme version of this thought experiment says we can at least imagine a being physically identical to a normal human being, but without any subjective consciousness. So I talk about my zombie twin, you know, a hypothetical being in the universe next door who's physically identical to me. He's holding a conversation like this with a zombie analog of you right now, um, saying all the, uh, all the same stuff and responding, but without any consciousness. Now, no one thinks anything like this exists in our universe, but the idea at least seems imaginable or conceivable. There doesn't seem to be any contradiction in the idea. And the very fact that you can kind of make sense of the idea immediately raises some questions like, why 
aren't we zombies? There's a contrast here. Um, zombies could have existed. Evolution could have produced zombies. Why didn't evolution produce zombies? It produced conscious beings. It looks like for anything behavioral you could point to, it starts to look as if a zombie could do all the same things without consciousness. So if there was some function we could point to and say that's what you need consciousness for and you could not in principle do that without consciousness, then we might have a function for consciousness. But right now it seems, I mean, actually this corresponds to the science for anything that we actually do. Uh, perception, learning, memory, language, and so on. It sure looks like a whole, a whole lot of it can be performed even in the actual world unconsciously. So the whole problem of what consciousness is doing is just thrown into harsh relief by that thought experiment. Yeah, well, yeah, as you say, that most of what our minds are accomplishing is unconscious, or at least it seems to be unconscious from the point of view of the two of us who are having this conversation. So the fact that I can follow the rules of English grammar insofar as I manage to do that, that is all being implemented in a way that is unconscious. And when I make an error, I, I as the conscious witness of my inner life, I'm just surprised at the appearance of the error, and I could be surprised for all, on all those occasions where I make no errors, and I get to the end of a sentence in something like grammatically correct form, I could be sensitive to the, the fundamental mysteriousness of that, which is to say that I'm following rules that I, am, I have no conscious access to in the moment. And everything is like that. The fact that I perceive the, my visual field, the fact that I hear your voice, the fact that I effortlessly and actually helplessly decode meaning from your words because I am an English speaker and, and you're speaking in English, but if you were speaking in Chinese, it would just be noise. And I mean, this is, this is all unconsciously mediated. And so, the, again, it, it is a mystery why there should be something that it's like to be associated with any part of this process because so much of the process can take place in the dark, or at least it seems to be in the dark. I guess this is something that, that is a, um, the topic I raised in my last book, Waking Up, when I, in, in discussing split brain research. But there, there is some reason to worry or, or wonder whether or not there are, there are islands of consciousness in our brains that we're not aware of, which is to say we have the, the problem of other minds with respect to our own brains. What, what do you think about that? What do you put the chance of there being something that it's like to be associated with these zombie parts of, or seemingly zombie parts of, of your own cognitive processing? Well, I don't, I don't rule it out. You know, I mean, I think when it comes to the mind-body problem, there are, um, you know, the puzzles are large enough that we just, one of the big puzzles is we don't know which systems are conscious. And at least some days I see a lot of attraction to the idea of thinking consciousness is much more widespread than we think. So not just, I guess most of us think, okay, humans are conscious and probably a lot of the more sophisticated mammals at least are conscious, apes, monkeys, dogs, cats, around the point of mice, maybe some people start to, flies, some people start to, to wobble, but you know, I, I'm attracted by the idea that for you know, many, at least reasonably sophisticated information processing devices, there's some kind of, uh, some kind of consciousness, and maybe this goes down very deep, and you know, one, at some point maybe we can talk about the idea that consciousness is, is everywhere, but before even getting to that point, if you're prepared to say that, say, a fly is, uh, is conscious, or a worm with its 300 neurons, and so on, then you do start to have to worry about uh, bits of the uh, 
bits of the brain that are enormously more sophisticated than that, but that are also part of another conscious system. There's a, uh, there's a guy, Giulio Tononi, who's put forward a well-known recent theory of consciousness called the information integration theory. And he's got a mathematical measure called phi of the amount of information that a system integrates and thinks, but roughly, whenever that's high enough, you get, uh, you get consciousness. So then, yeah, you'd look at these different bits of the brain, the, uh, the, uh, the hemisphere, different things like the cerebellum, and something, well, okay, the phi there is not as high as it is for the brain, but it's still pretty high, high enough that in an animal, he would say it's conscious. So why isn't it? And he ends up having to throw in an, an extra axiom that he calls the exclusion axiom, saying if you're part of a system that has a higher phi than you, then you're not conscious. So if the, you know, if the hemisphere has a high phi, but the brain as a whole has a higher phi, then the brain gets to be conscious, but the hemisphere doesn't. But to many people, that axiom looks kind of arbitrary. And you know, if it wasn't for that being in there, then you'd be left with a whole lot of conscious subsystems all over. And I agree. It's who knows what it's like to be a subsystem, you know, what it's like to be my cerebellum or what it's like to be a hemisphere. But yeah, at least makes you, uh, you know, makes you, uh, makes you worry and wonder. On the other hand, you know, there are these experiments where, you know, one half of the brain is basically these situations where one half of the brain basically gets destroyed and the other half keeps going fine. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so I wanted to ask you about Tononi's notion of consciousness as integrated information. And it, to my eye, it seems yet another case of someone just trying to ram past the hard problem. And I, I actually, I noticed Max Tegmark wrote a paper that actually took Tononi as a starting point. And uh, Max has been on this podcast where I don't think we touched on consciousness, but he also did a version of this. He just basically said, you know, we, that, let's start here. We know that there are certain arrangements of matter that just are conscious. We know this. There, there, there is no problem. We just, this, is, this is a starting point. And now we just have to talk about the plausible explanation for what makes them conscious. And then he sort of went on to embrace Tononi and then, and then, then did a lot of physics. But what do you, I mean, is there anything in Tononi's discussion here that pries up the lid on the hard problem more than the earlier work he did with Edelman or, or anyone else's attempt to give some information processing construal or a, a synchronicity? of neural firing construal of consciousness? Yeah, to be fair to, uh, to Giulio uh, Tononi, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's true that in some of the presentations of his work in the popular press and so on, you can get this idea, oh, information integration is all there is, let's explain that, we've explained everything. He's actually very sensitive to the, uh, to the problem of consciousness. And, and, if and when pressed on this, and even in some of the stuff he's written, he says, I'm not trying to solve the hard problem in the sense of showing how you can get consciousness from matter. He's not trying to cross the explanatory gap from physical processes to consciousness. Rather, he says, I'm starting with the fact of consciousness. I'm just taking that as a given that we are conscious and I'm trying to map its properties. And he actually starts with some phenomenological axioms of consciousness. It consists of information that's differentiated in certain ways, but integrated and unified in other ways. And then what he, what he tries to do is take those phenomenological axioms and turn them into mathematics, turn them into mathematics of information and say, what are the informational properties that consciousness has? And then he comes up with this mathematical measure. Then at a certain point, it somehow turns into the theory that all consciousness is, is this, what consciousness is, is a certain kind of integration of information. 
the way I would hear the theory, I don't know if he puts it this way, is basically there's a correlation between different states of consciousness and different kinds of integration of information in the brain. There's still a hard problem here because we still have no idea why all that integration of information in the brain should give you consciousness in the first place. But even someone who believes there's a hard problem can believe there are still really systematic correlations between brain processes and consciousness that we ought to be able to give a rigorous mathematical theory of, you know, just which physical states go with which kind of states of consciousness. And I see Julio's theory as basically as a, at least a stab in that direction of trying to give a rigorous mathematical theory of the correlations. Yeah, yeah. Well, I should say that I certainly agree that one can more or less throw up one's hands with respect to the hard problem and then just go on to do the work of trying to map the neural correlates of consciousness and understand what consciousness seems to be in our case as a matter of its its instantiation in the brain and never pretend that the mystery has been reduced thereby so that you know if if it just if it turned out that uh, I think I said this once in response to the, to the work he did with Edelman. So they, they they put a one of the criteria. They they I don't know if he still does this, but one of his criterion for for information integration was that there it had to be within a window of something like 500 milliseconds, right? And I just by analogy extrapolated that out to you know geological processes in the Earth. And but what if it was just the fact that integrated processes in the earth over the of over a time course of a few hundred years was a sufficient basis of consciousness if we just stipulate that that's true that's still just a a statement of a miracle from my point of view from the point of view of being sympathetic with the hard problem that would be a, a, an incredibly strange thing to believe and yet that is the sort of thing we are are being forced to believe about our own brains just uh, you know, under a slightly different description I do think there's something intermediate that you can go for here, even if you do believe and you're very convinced there's a serious hard problem of consciousness that allows the possibility of a, at least a broadly scientific approach to something in the neighborhood of the hard problem. It's not where it's not just, oh, let's look at the neural correlates and see what's going on in the human case, but it's something like try to find the simplest, most fundamental principles that connect physical processes to consciousness as a kind of basic, general, and universal principle. So we might start with some correlations we find in the familiar human case between, say, certain neural systems and certain kinds of consciousness, but then try and generalize those based on as much evidence as possible. Of course, the evidence is limited, which is another, which is another um, limitation here. But um, then try and find principles which might apply to other systems. Ultimately, look for really simple bridging principles that cross the gap from physical systems to consciousness and that would in principle predict what kind of consciousness you'd find in what kind of physical system. So I would say something like Tononi's information integration principle with this mathematical quantity phi as a proposal, maybe a very early proposal, about a fundamental principle that might connect physical processes to consciousness. Now it does it doesn't try it doesn't exactly remove the hard problem, because at some point you've got to take that principle as a basic axiom. Yeah, when there's information integration, there's consciousness. But then you can at least go on to do science with that principle. And it may well be that, uh, you know, my take on this is that we know that elsewhere in science, you have to take some laws and some principles 
as fundamental. You know, the fundamental laws of physics, the law of gravity, or the unified, the unified field theory, or the laws of quantum mechanics. Some things are just basic principles that we don't try and explain any further. But it may well be that when it comes to consciousness, we're going to have to take something like that for granted as well. So we don't try to explain space, or at least we didn't try to explain space in terms of something more basic. Some things get taken as primitive, and we look at the fundamental laws that involve them. Likewise, the same could be true for consciousness. And we ended up, you know, maybe it's, we ended up pretty satisfied about what goes on in the case of space. Space is one of the primitives, but we've got a great scientific theory of how it works. We could end up in that position for consciousness too. Yes, we have to take something here as, as, as basic, but we'll get this really fundamental principle, say like the information integration principle that crosses the gap and yet won't remove the hard problem because that'll be taken as basic, but that will at least be reduced to a situation we're familiar with elsewhere in science. Yeah, yeah, and I actually I'm quite sympathetic with that line. As you say, there, there are primitives or, or brute facts that we accept throughout science, and really, they are no insult to our thinking about the rest of reality. And I, so I want to get there, but I, I realize now I, I forgot to ask a question that Annika wanted me to ask, my wife Annika wanted me to ask on the zombie argument, and she was wondering why, I mean, whether it was actually conceivable that a zombie would or could talk about consciousness itself. I mean, how is it that you take a zombie, you know, my zombie twin that has no experience, there's nothing that it's like to be that thing, but it is talking just as I am and is, is functioning just as I am. What could possibly motivate a zombie that is devoid of phenomenal experience to say things like, I have experiences, but other creatures don't, or, or, or to worry about the possibility of zombies? There would seem to be no basis to make this distinction, because everything he's doing, he can easily ascribe to others that have no experience. So there's, there's no, there seems to be no basis for him to distinguish experience from non-experience. So, so I, I just wanted to get your reaction to that on, on her behalf. I mean, this is a big puzzle, and it's probably one of the biggest puzzles when it comes to thinking through this idea of a zombie. Why on earth are these zombies talking about consciousness if they don't have it? Now, if the claim is just, are zombies conceivable, I don't think it's particularly hard to at least conceive of a system doing this. I mean, I'm talking to you now, and you're making you know, a lot of comments about consciousness that seem to strongly suggest that you have it. Still, I can at least entertain the idea that you're not conscious and that you're a, uh, that you're a zombie who's, in fact, just making all these noises without having any consciousness on the inside. And I think we can do this, we can conceive of this with any other person. So at least doesn't, there seems to be no contradiction in the idea. That doesn't mean that it's a sensible way for a system to be or that it's somehow, uh, that makes it easier to understand or to explain those systems. I mean, surely, yeah, if there was actually a world of, you know, if there were zombies among us, they probably wouldn't talk about, uh, about consciousness. So in some ways, conceiving of zombies is a bit like, you know, conceiving of anti-gravity in a world of, in a world of gravity and so on, it might be well in tension with other things in the world, and it might not really make sense. But the basic idea, I guess, is that, well, there are brain mechanisms responsible for everything that we say and everything that we do, and whatever is explaining that in us, um, those behavioral responses will also explain it in the case of a zombie. That then raises the very interesting question of whether it's possible I've often entertained this idea that even if it's hard to explain consciousness 
in physical terms, the actual experience, maybe you could explain the things we say about consciousness in physical terms, because that's just a behavioral response. That's in principle one of the easy problems. And then you might think, well, boy, well, that at least is a research project for straightforward science. Explain the things we say about consciousness in physical terms. And who knows, maybe that's possible. If that turns out to be possible, then there's a couple of different directions you can go. It's easy to see why you might then be tempted to go Dan Dennett's way and say, boy, we've explained all the things people say about consciousness. That's all we need to explain. The rest is an illusion. We've explained why you feel this mystery of consciousness, whether or not there actually is one. We've explained why you say there's, there's one. So that's Dan Dennett's way. Another way to go would be the epiphenomenalist way, which is, well, turns out you can explain the things we say, but consciousness was never about the saying. It was just about the, uh, the feeling. The third view is that consciousness actually gets in the system and plays a role in physical processing in a way that we don't yet fully understand. Well, I think it's, I'm not at all tempted by the, the lure of behaviorism here. So it's not, because it's clear to me that consciousness is beyond just the sane of things. So it's not, it's beyond self-report. It's beyond, uh, you know, I've had enough experience of my own mind that seems to drive a wedge between consciousness itself and language that, you know, you know, both through meditation and psychedelics and, and you know, just getting hit on the head. I mean, there, there are kind of these liminal states of consciousness that convince me that it's not just a matter of the lights going on once we can speak or once we, we have enough language on board. But it is hard to escape epiphenomenalism for me. because So, so let's just say that consciousness is you know, the, the, the experiential component of you know the well, what it's like to be me is simply the subjective side of a certain class of physical events and that that is what it is to be conscious my consciousness is at bottom something my brain is doing then when we say that consciousness makes a difference and we we entertain you know why it might have evolved and all the rest we are still aren't we still saying that it makes a difference in terms of its physical correlates. I mean, the cash value of consciousness in each moment is always the cash value of its antecedent physicality, right? So that doesn't still leave the qualitative character an epiphenomenon? I think it does, given certain assumptions. Uh, if you think consciousness is distinct from the physical correlates, and if you think the physical correlates form a closed system, a kind of a closed network where every physical event has a physical cause, then it's very hard, I think, to avoid the conclusion that consciousness is an epiphenomenon. So to avoid that, then you either need to say consciousness is somehow right there in the physical network somehow. It's kind of part of the physical system right at the very bottom level, maybe even in physics. Or you have to say that the physical system is not a closed network. There are holes and the physical processing where consciousness can kind of get in and make a difference. You know, some people think something like this goes on in quantum mechanics, for example, with, uh, with wave function collapse. Maybe there's a role there for consciousness. But I think one of those two things would be the, the kind of thing you have to say to avoid consciousness being an epiphenomenon. Well, so let's talk about the way in which consciousness could be more fundamental. And I guess, so I guess I'm, I heard in what you briefly sketched there the possibility that consciousness is, that it goes all the way down in the sense of information processing 
and that there's something special about information processing. And, and I recall this from your first book that you suggested at one point that a, even a, a system as simple as a thermostat might be conscious in that it processes information. And then I guess even deeper than that is the notion of panpsychism, that, that, that consciousness may be, in fact, a fundamental constituent of reality prior to any, at least current, notion of, of information processing. Tease those apart for me. Yes, so the idea here is that consciousness may be present at a very fundamental level in physics. Um, this corresponds to traditional philosophical view called panpsychism, says pan, says basically everything has a mind, pan for all, and mind, consciousness, so every system is conscious. At the very least, there's consciousness in fundamental physical systems, like say atoms, or quarks, or photons. Now this seems initially like a pretty crazy idea to many people, I mean, we have no direct evidence for this, that's certainly true. Once you entertain the idea that the world could be that way, then at least it has certain philosophical advantages. The basic idea is that ultimately every physical system is somehow made of a little bit of, um, of consciousness, and that whenever, say, one, let's do it with classical physics, one atom affects another, another atom, then it's basically, ultimately, it's consciousness playing that role, because consciousness is what the physics is ultimately made of. If you take that view now, it's admittedly a radical and kooky-sounding view. But if you do take that view, it's like consciousness is somehow inside the network of physics right from the start. And our consciousness, the one we're experiencing, the one I'm experiencing, is going to be somehow a combination of all those little bits of consciousness at the basic level. That's a huge problem to understand how that would work. But the thought is consciousness now doesn't have to interfere with the physical causal network because it's part of it right from the start. And that's at least the philosophical attraction of that view. And as a result, actually, quite a few people, both in philosophy and in science, have been exploring this crazy-sounding panpsychist idea for the last few years. It's been, a very, it's been a very active research area for people saying, ah, if we go this way, maybe will it help us avoid some of those really bad problems? Does it actually get you out of the hard problem? I, it feels like it, 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 it creates some other hard problems. So one, it, it leaves it mysterious why anything then would seem to not be associated with consciousness, even, even the function of your own brain. So there's much of that's going on in our brains, as we've said, that it seems there's nothing that it's like to be. And so it, it still leaves the, the apparent partition between what it's like to be me and what it's like to be the rest of me in terms of my brain mysterious. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right that the view does create other problems in turn. I mean, it avoids the original hard problem. Why is there consciousness at all? In a sense, by taking it as basic. It's a view that says, well, it's just fundamentally present at the bottom level in the way that we take space or time or mass to be present. But then after having at least gotten around that problem, it's, there are still questions about explaining, well, why is it just like this to be us? One of these problems gets called the combination problem. How is it that all those little bits of consciousness in, say, fundamental particles should come to, could come together to yield a unified and bounded and rich consciousness of the kind that I have? And there, and you've just raised another aspect of that, which is why isn't every system at the high level conscious? One thing that a panpsychist could say is that, in fact, they are. There's, conscious, there's a bit of consciousness in all kinds of systems, but... I just happen to be identical to one of them. 
I happen to be identical to the brain level consciousness. I don't have any access to the, I'm not the hemisphere level consciousness. I'm not the, uh, I'm not the New York level consciousness. I'm not the earth level consciousness. One very extreme panpsychist view would say consciousness is present at all. Some kind of consciousness is present at all of these levels, but maybe the brain has certain special properties of unity and integration and so on. That means it's not just conscious, but maybe it's intelligent and it has thoughts and it has a coherent narrative and it can tell an autobiography for itself and so on. So maybe that would explain why the only systems that are actually thinking about this stuff are things, say, of a level of brains. But there is a panpsychist view that says, um, you know, there is consciousness elsewhere. It's just that we don't have access to that. Yeah. And it does raise the question of just what you would expect to be different. Because it is, you say it's a strange theory, and it is quite strange to imagine that that everything, including tables and chairs and even the, the subatomic particles of which they're composed, is conscious on some level. I don't think a panpsychist would say that a chair is conscious as a chair, but just that matter on some of its most basic levels would just throb with the, the, the dull hum of, of something that is likeness. But then the question is, so what would, would you expect to see anything different in the world uh, if that were true, and I, you know, my intuition is is to say no. I wouldn't expect chairs to start talking to me if if their atoms were were conscious on some level. And if it's if you wouldn't expect to see any difference at all, which is more or less where I sit, then one is hard pressed to say why it's a strange thesis, right? The the, the sense of its strangeness seems in some way predicated on the sense that you have some basis to find it implausible based on how the world seems. But if you, if upon analysis, you can't see how the world would be any different if this were true, then I'm not sure how you can make a strong assertion that it's a very strange idea. That's interesting. Different people have different reactions to this uh, kind of situation. Well, it's consistent with, uh, with all of our evidence. There's no evidence either for it or against it. Some people say, well, that means it's a ridiculous hypothesis. We'll never have any evidence for it. It can't be science, so we shouldn't take it seriously. But yeah, as you say, the other view is, well, it's consistent with everything, all the evidence we have and that we'll ever get, and therefore it's not ruled out, and therefore we should, uh, we should take it seriously. And I can see, uh, I can see the, uh, the motivations in going both ways. I mean, it's a general problem in this whole field of the study of consciousness that evidence is very, very hard to come by. We all have first-person evidence about our own states, but the moment it comes to anybody else, our access is indirect. I mean, with other people, we tend to listen to what they say. If they tell us that they're conscious, then by and large, we believe them and we take that as evidence. But once we get to further systems, is a dog conscious? Is a, is a fly conscious? Well, our evidence is only extremely indirect. I like to say that this, um, yeah, this field would be a whole lot easier if we had a uh, if we had the mythical consciousness meter that you could just point at someone's head and get a readout of their consciousness, and then we'd have a straightforward, objective science of, of consciousness. I'd point, my, uh, I'd point my consciousness meter at the chair or at the fly, at the atom, at the, uh, at the dog, um, at other people, and get a readout of their states of consciousness. So then it would be a whole lot easier, but because consciousness is private and subjective, it's a whole lot, uh, it's a whole lot harder. I actually once gave a talk about this stuff at the CIA of all places. Um, and you know, it's just stuff of consciousness. I think they were kind of they were kind of bored. Then I got to the bit about the consciousness meter, and uh, I don't know. I had the sense that their ears kind of pricked up. It's right. like, 
we could really use one of those. Yeah. It would save us save us a lot of money and a lot of time and trouble in waterboarding. Yeah, well, they could use a lie detector before that. Uh huh. Yeah. So, yeah. Whether or not anyone's conscious, we want to know whether they're lying. We want to know whether our robots are lying to us, whether or not they're conscious. What do you do with the the concern that we just may be making too much of what is at bottom a failure of intuition here? So we're finding the intuition that's supposed to track the emergence of consciousness from unconscious complexity or some prior condition. And we find this to be fundamentally mysterious, but it's at some level that is a statement about our own cognitive deficits and you know what it's like to be us. And I recently so I recently had this experience in an unrelated area. I was I was telling my daughter how to spell the word boat. And I told her, but it just didn't sound right to me. I mean, so the, the, the spelling of this very simple word seemed deeply unfamiliar to me all of a sudden. And I actually had to Google the word boat to see that I was, I was spelling it correctly. What's going on with that O followed by an A all of a sudden? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so, and then, but the truth is when I stare at the word boat, it still doesn't look right to me. It's like, it's like I've had a stroke in the, the area of my brain that deals with nautical terms or something. So it's, it's, and in fact, you can do this with anything. If you, just, if you just stare at any word, it can begin to seem unfamiliar. But of course, there's, there's no hard problem for the spelling of the word boat. Is there, is there something analogous here that could be happening where we are just being misled by an intuition or a failure of intuition to, to see a problem where that there's, there's one doesn't exist? I mean, I think we should at least be open to the idea that there's something here about the way the phenomenon interacts with our psychology that makes it especially hard for us to get a grip on. I mean, it may well be that if there were, you know, creatures that were, you know, millions of times more intelligent than us, then there'd simply be not much of a problem here. Or if there's a solution, they would grasp it so straightforwardly that it wouldn't seem particularly puzzling. I mean, there could be that we're just under the force of a giant illusion. And I do take seriously the idea that, uh, you know, we ought to at least contemplate the possibility that we're getting something very wrong in our thinking about this, uh, this problem. But it could also mean that we're limited in the bits of the world that we, that we understand. For example, we're pretty good at understanding mathematical structure of the world scientifically. And it turns out, although math isn't necessarily totally natural for a human, it turns out to be something that's pretty tractable um, for us. But then interfacing that mathematical structure with the deliverances of, say, introspection and consciousness, well, maybe those are just two bits of the brain that don't work terribly well together. Now, maybe there's some, but maybe there's some more complex unifying story if we were beings which uh, were more used to, for example, if we had somehow the consciousness meter in our head and had access to all the possible intrinsic states of consciousness, and we can instantaneously entertain not just what it's like to be us, but what it's like to be a bat or what it's like to be a mouse and so on. And then maybe we'd be much more deft about this and would have some kind of integrated picture of, of nature. But I think to do science, we're basically stuck, at least for now, with, uh, with what we've got. And we need to just reason with the, uh, the resources we have. But we shouldn't be, I think we at least need to be humble and uh, you know, I mean, someone like Colin McGinn takes this to an extreme by saying that, you know, maybe we'll just never solve the problem just because we're too dumb and our brains were, uh, our brains were not evolved to, to do philosophy. But there's still a perfectly uh, straightforward solution somewhere out there. It's just that, that uh, we'll never be able to grasp it.
I once actually uh, teased uh, Colin about this by looking. I read the first review of his uh, of his book of uh, of Dan Dennett's book, which was kind of you know, Colin was not a fan of uh, of Dan's book and had paragraphs like, "Look, this is just ridiculous. This book it doesn't even look like a uh, a theory of of consciousness. It's impossible to see. This doesn't explain the phenomenon." Of- Colin, how would you react if you saw the true solution written by those right. those, those <laughs> beings who are a million times smarter than you? Maybe you just maybe you go apoplectic in exactly the same way. So you have to at least entertain the idea that Dan is on the other side of that uh, of that uh, of that bright line and has the uh, and has the solution. Nice point. Did Dan see your defense of him? <laughs> I think I told him about it at some point. Yeah, yeah, that's that's funny. I was actually on a I was actually on a cruise in Greenland uh, just a, a year or two ago with Dan and a, a few other people, totally dedicated to the idea that consciousness is an illusion, which is a view that uh, Dan is a big fan of, and a number of other people. Uh, the Churchlands, Paul and Pat were there, and Andy Clark and Nick Humphrey, largely people who are fans of the idea that consciousness is an illusion. So we gave that idea a run for its money for a uh, for a week or so in between, uh, you know, looking at icebergs and going around this amazing landscape. And I think it's an idea that, although I find the view completely implausible, I think it's the kind of view that we need to be developing. In particular, that materialists and reductionists need to be really trying to develop seriously, at least as one of the major alternatives in the theory of consciousness. But it, well, actually, that leads me to um, a topic I'd like to close with, which is AI and the matrix and, and really the, where this may all be headed if consciousness is just a matter of information processing. But you have gone the other way on the topic of this, of the illusoriness or not of things, where you, at one point in an article, you took a, an unconventional line on this notion of being a brain in a vat or being in the matrix where most people put that forward as if that were the case, then, well, then reality is in some sense an illusion. Consciousness may not be an illusion. In fact, I would say consciousness is, again, the one thing that can't be an illusion, even if everything that seems like something is, in fact, different from what you think it is. You, you, know, you think you're in a world, but you're really in a matrix. The seeming can't be an illusion, but you've argued that if we're in the matrix, and this is all just a simulation, tables and chairs and the world and other people aren't illusions in the usual way that is claimed. Can you say something about that? I was actually just in a uh, debate about this topic on Tuesday night at the uh, Natural History Museum in New York on, is the universe a simulation? With uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson was there and Max Tegmark and Lisa Randall and Jim Gates. It was a, it was, it was a whole, whole lot of fun. There's this, uh, it's been getting a lot of currency lately, this idea, not least due to the ideas of uh, Nick Bostrom, who's put forward this statistical line of reasoning that suggests maybe we're in a uh, simulation because, hey, there's going to be a lot of simulations developed in the history of the universe due to simulation technology. Maybe the simulated beings will outnumber the non-simulated ones. So maybe we're one of them. This is great for a philosopher because uh, it's very reminiscent of Rene Descartes' old thought experiment that, you know, maybe we're being fooled by an evil genius into uh, thinking all this stuff exists when it doesn't. And the standard line is that if we're in a simulation such as the matrix, it's all an illusion. It seems to you, it seems to Neo while he's in the matrix that there are tables and chairs and leather coats and agents and so on. But none of that really exists. It's all a big, uh, it's all a big illusion. And my take on this is that's actually the wrong way to think about the simulation hypothesis and so on. It could be, I mean, I take seriously the idea that we are in a simulation. I have no idea whether it's true. But my view is, if it's true, if we are in a simulation, it's not that none of this is real. It's not that there are no tables and chairs and trees. 
It's rather that they exist in a somewhat different form from what we had first thought. There's a level of computation underneath what we take to be physical reality. This is like a, uh, this is a hypothesis some people in physics take seriously, sometimes called the it from bit hypothesis, information underneath physics. And it's the way the world could be. I don't think it's a way, it's not a, a view where trees don't exist or atoms don't exist. It's a view where they exist and they're made of information. So if I discovered that we were living in a simulation, I'd basically say, okay, well, all this is real, but we now, it turns out we live in an informational world, a world that's kind of more informational, say, than, than physical. Max Tegmark likes this idea because it corresponds to roughly to his idea of a mathematical universe. Um, but um, I think it actually reconfigures the way you think about this stuff and makes the whole simulation hypothesis not seem so threatening. Yeah, and I've taken it to heart in imagining that if the beings of the future who, who are creating more simulated worlds than real ones and therefore making it likely that we're in a simulation rather than a real world, if they turn out to be Mormons, they may have just simulated a the Mormon universe and then everything I have said about religion in particular and Mormonism or religion in general and more Mormonism in particular is is wrong. Uh, that's uh, if you if you're going to follow Bostrom down that path, things can be as weird and as provincial as you want them to be. Yeah, you know, I'm a natural uh, I'm a natural atheist in my uh, thinking about you know gods and so on. But I find that thinking about simulations and so on can somehow just uh, just suddenly make you take the idea of a creator a little bit more seriously than you uh, you once. Uh, once might have. I think of this as simulation theology, you know, speculating about the character of, of uh, who made the, uh, the, uh, the simulation. I mean, maybe it's just a uh, teenage hacker in the, next, uh, in the next universe up. But suddenly it's like, well, this, you know, we could be living in a simulated world. There could be a creator, at least of this local bit of the universe that we're, uh, we're looking at. I don't know what your take is on this as a, as a devout atheist, but is this a, is this a theology that even a naturalist can... Uh, can take seriously to some extent. Well, it's it, it's interesting to try to get under the the statistical argument. I mean, it really is just you know, it's not based on any evidence that we're in a, sim, a simulation. It's just based on extrapolating that that as we continue to make progress in computer science, or as any intelligent beings do, they one of the things they will do is simulate worlds in their machines and almost by definition simulations will outnumber real universes and outnumber by such a factor that it's only reasonable to suspect that if you if you find yourself in a universe you're more likely to be in a simulated one and so it's just it's not based on anything other than that probabilistic argument i, I feel like other people have used that to similarly thrilling effect. I think it was, was it the philosopher John Leslie who once wrote a book, The End of the World, doing a mm -hmm. similar... The, dooms the doomsday argument. Right. Yeah. The world is probably going to end soon. Otherwise, we'd be unreasonably and unexpectedly early in the history of the universe. Assuming we're about halfway, which is what you'd expect, then yeah, the world is ending any, any year now. <laughs> right, right. And, and halfway being in terms of the... Number the of lives of, lived. Right. The number of beings, because I think it's been... It's been something, if you go to back to the, the dawn of uh, the species, I think it's something like a, a hundred billion people, uh, uh, homo sapiens, have ever existed. I, I could have that a little off, but it's, it's not by an order of magnitude. There are seven billion of us now. So if, if, if there is just a, if we have a truly open-ended future, 
where we you know go on to colonize the rest of the solar system and and move out among the the stars and there are going to be trillions upon trillions of us for you know thriving for billions of years well then we are so early at the dawn of this thing that we are this crazy statistical anomaly but i feel like i and again i'm I, forgive me for not remembering the details but i feel like some statistically minded people push back against that as a an instance of shoddy mathematical reasoning. Do you remember anything convincing being said against Leslie or being said against, in this case, Bostrom, just about the the, the probabilistic argument? For Leslie's doomsday argument, I think there's quite a, there's a few things you can say. One line that I was always found interesting in response is that, well, just say this is an infinite universe and this all goes on forever. Then any being relatively early in the universe, assuming a, a starting point that was a finite amount of time ago, like the Big Bang, any being anywhere in the universe is going to be at a finite point with finite time before them and infinite time ahead of them. So any being is going to be unreasonably early in the history of the universe. Even if we're the, you know, the Googleplex being, it's still like, well, it's just uh, the very dawn of the universe on the infinite time scale. So that's, uh, if the universe is infinite, I think then all bets are off with respect to this kind of uh, this kind of reasoning. I'm not sure that that worry applies to the uh, to the Bostrom case. And in general, I'm a bit more sympathetic with Bostrom's argument than with the uh, the doomsday argument. But it really does turn. I think it connects to our earlier discussion because it does turn on a premise about consciousness. It turns, in particular, on the claim that all those simulate all those simulated beings in simulated worlds are in fact going to be conscious, like us. Because after all, I know that I'm conscious. If I could know that a simulated being wouldn't be conscious. I would then have decisive evidence that I'm not simulated. So Bostrom actually brings in as one of the uh, as one of the principles supporting his reasoning a principle of substrate independence. Consciousness is independent of substrate. So if it's simulated, if the physics of the brain is simulated well enough uh, on a computer, then it will be conscious. And if you're prepared to go along with that, then you get to his conclusion. If you question that, then it's no longer as straightforward. I mean, you might say. Well, as long as there's a 20% chance from our perspective that a simulated being will be conscious, then that kind of interacts with the probabilities in enough of a way to at least give us a very significant chance that will be, uh, will be simulated. But I think, you know, there is a pretty deep connection to the philosophy of mind at that point. Yes. And so how would you describe your own view now on consciousness? And this, there's another phrase here that's in my memory based on something you've written which I don't think we've introduced here, but just uh, it seems to me that in all your arguments, you are arguing for a what you call a non-reductive view of, of consciousness. And this really relates to the, the nature of, of scientific explanation, because the, most explanations are thought of in terms of, of being reductive, and you're, you're, which is to say that in this case, we would be, to, to explain consciousness would be just by definition, to explain it in terms other than itself, in terms of something that is some processes or, or systems or events that are themselves unconscious. And yet you have argued for a kind of non-reductionism, which is, you've said somewhat sheepishly, is a, is a, is a, a form of dualism. It's a, I think you call it an, an innocent dualism somewhere. Is that st- is, is that still your view? And just just how how would you articulate your your current view on on consciousness? I suppose I think that consciousness 
can't be explained in terms of standard physical processes of the kind we currently understand. Earlier, we touched on this distinction between the easy problems and the hard problems. And I was saying standard neuroscience addresses the easy problems of behavior pretty well, but doesn't really give us a grip on the hard problem of experience. I'm actually, in, in stuff I've argued, I think I try, I try to generalize this to explaining in terms of physical, any kind of explanation in terms of physical processes. But the basic worry is that physics is all cast in terms of mathematical structure and dynamics, which is perfectly well suited for explaining things like behavior, but will always leave a gap to explaining why is there consciousness, because it's basically not a problem about that structure and dynamics. So anyway, if you grant that kind of argument, then it starts to look like consciousness can't be explained in terms of ordinary underlying physical ontology, then you have to add something to the picture. And either you add something separate from the physical processes, which is a form of dualism, maybe epiphenomenalism, which we were talking about, or maybe uh, interactionism with consciousness playing a role. Maybe it's not anything like a soul or a substance, but at the very least, we need new properties in our picture besides space and time, mass and charge. That's one possibility. The other possibility is we add, we enrich physics at the very bottom level with consciousness, maybe in the the panpsychist pathway of finding consciousness right down at the basic level, maybe as part of the intrinsic character of what, say, space and time and mass really are. So those are, the, they're all radical, they're all fairly radical possibilities, I can see that. But I think all of them have the character that we need to add something to our, funda- you know, right now we've got a picture of the universe with certain fundamental constituents, space, time, mass, charge. And so my view is roughly that consciousness or something like consciousness needs to be in that catalog too. Maybe it's some extra thing, proto-consciousness, from which consciousness will derive. But I think you need something new there. So I recognize that's a, that's a, a radical view, and it's not going to be for everybody. But my own view is it's the only way to really take consciousness seriously and still end up with the science of it. Because once you've got consciousness there as a fundamental, we can do science with it in the same way we did with space and time and mass and charge. And we're a long way short of having anything like you know Newton's laws of of consciousness, but I think it's something that we can aim for in the long run. Do you still view it as a as a fundamental property of information processing, or is your intuition that it's that it is um, more fundamental than that? I go back and forth on that one. I've always been attracted by the idea. There's really strong links to information, and I speculated about this in the book twenty years ago. I haven't really taken that a lot further, but I'm really interested in what Tononi's been doing with integrated information theory, because I view that as a development of the, uh, the same kind of idea. For me, the, the question was always, that at least held open the prospect of giving a mathematical theory. My background's in math, so I've always, uh, always you know, hoped for a mathematical theory of, uh, of consciousness. And although I've got various questions about what Tononi's doing, I think there's, you know, there's a lot of interesting hope in that direction. But yeah, it could turn out that what's truly fundamental here is information, or it could turn out there's something, uh, something much more fundamental still that underlies, you know, both information and consciousness. I think we're still just along. I mean, I think inevitably we're at the point of kind of like fumbling with, uh, with physics centuries before Newton or Einstein or fumbling with biology way, way before Darwin still, you know, probably in a hundred years time, we'll look back and say, um, okay, well, this was really fumbling, but you know, at least we can hope that every now and then we take a step in the right direction. That brings me to my final question for you, which is what might be looking back 
in a hundred years' time. Uh, what, what are you? What are your thoughts on AI? And um, I assume you've you're aware of what Bostrom has been saying about it. If if you haven't actually read his book Superintelligence, so well, yeah, give me your give me your take on AI. And you know, I, I just uh, recently drunk the Kool Aid here. It's been about a year since I've been thinking about AI, and it was you know Bostrom's book was the the first input, and I've grown worried about the the safety concerns, you know, the control problem, as he calls it. And I'm um, just wondering what your thoughts are there. Yeah, no, I'm very interested in uh, AI. And I think there's a lot of reasons for, there certainly are reasons for concern. I did my, uh, my PhD in an AI lab, actually, at uh, Indiana University. Doug Hofstadter, who wrote Goethe Lescherbach and so on, was my, uh, was my thesis advisor. And he's, he was basically doing uh, AI, as he, uh, as he still is. And so I've always been very sympathetic with the, uh, with the whole AI project, but you do have to take seriously this idea about what happens when machines become as intelligent as we are. I actually wrote an article on this maybe six years ago now called The Singularity, a Philosophical Analysis, where I tried to take this idea which is out there and turn it into a philosophical argument that roughly when machines are become a bit smarter than we are, they'll be a bit better than us at designing machines. Therefore, they'll end up designing machines a bit smarter than them. And that process will just continue recursively until fairly soon you have machines that are way smarter than we are, which presumably leads to massive, massive ramifications for, uh, for what happens in the world. And you know, in the article I wrote on this, I, I basically took the line, yes, this is a, you can turn that informal argument into a fairly rigorous argument that, that it's in fact pretty likely that something like this will happen. I mean, certain fairly strong conditions would have to hold for AI not to be possible of this kind. One thing worth noting is that the considerations about consciousness can almost be set to one side here because all that really matters for us, like from the point of view of self-interest, is the behavior of these machines. If it turns out they're unconscious zombies who are taking over the world, well, that's not much consolation for us. So, uh, Yeah, well, it, it's interesting because I've heard at least one computer scientist talk about this, and he just, he, he took a line that was I guess, analogous to uh, Nozick's utility monster thought experiment, where he, he basically said that we are, in creating these super intelligent, even godlike AIs, we will be creating, almost by definition, he didn't seem to acknowledge any possibility otherwise, that we'll be creating systems that are more conscious and therefore more ethically important than we are. And we'll be creating gods We'll be creating the utility monsters whose interests outweigh our own by, you know, a functionally infinite degree, and this is the most glorious thing we will ever have a hand in doing, and it really doesn't matter that they may trample upon our interests and even annihilate us, no more than it matters that we occasionally trample upon anthills or anything else that, is, that has interests that are less significant compared to our own. But what he didn't seem to entertain, which seems to be a, you know, we've touched on briefly, uh, it's certainly a real concern for me, it seems to be a possibility that we could build systems that are far more intelligent than we are, that in the sense that they're far more competent at solving problems, including the problem of designing further iterations of themselves or recursively self-improving their own software, which is to say we can get a, we can initiate what has been called an, an intelligence explosion, and yet there will be nothing that it's like to be these machine. So that in, in some sense, it's, it's ethically the worst case scenario where we've built something 
that can destroy us simply because it, it may not be aligned with our interests and gobble up all of our resources, uh, including our own atoms, to, to follow Bostrom's thought experiment. But the, the lights will not be on. The universe will be dark when populated by these machines. Yeah, now that would certainly be a shame. Uh, to stamp, yeah. <laughs> stamp we've, we're creating our successes and we think, okay, well, at least this is the glorious future of evolution. But if it turns out to be the step that stamps out consciousness, then suddenly the world is going to lose all of its meaning and value for, uh, for, uh, for everyone. Uh, one thing that I think is worth contemplating here, people think about, okay, we're creating our own successes, we won't be around, but um, there's really two ways it could go. I mean, look, I suspect that artificial superintelligence may well be part of the, the, uh, you know, the history of the future. But there's two possibilities here. And one of them, we're still around. And the other one, we're not still around. In one model, we design creatures utterly unlike us who take over the world. In another kind of future, we start with us and we enhance ourselves. Um, and maybe we upload ourselves and so on. So we are the super intelligent creatures in the future, or at least the super intelligent creatures in the future are recognizably versions of us that somehow evolved from us, maybe by some transfer onto different hardware. I mean, that, I think, reduces the distance between those creatures and us. And by the kind of reasoning that you were making earlier, maybe increases the chances that those beings are genuinely going to be conscious like us because they're going to be more closely related to us. I mean, ethically, it's kind of nicer for us, even for our self-interest, because hey, we'll be there, or descendants of us will be there benefiting. Um, and from the point of view of whether there's consciousness there, I mean, of course, you might say, well, at some point, we had to move all this onto faster hardware because the biology was too slow. And I suppose that's going to at least raise the question of whether consciousness gets lost at that point, where we upload ourselves onto the faster technology. I've, one line I've, I've thought a bit about uh, this whole uploading point in the context of consciousness. One line I'm attracted to is the idea, if you do it gradually, if you update your, if you upgrade your brain a bit at a time with, you know, one neuron replaced by a silicon chip at a time and stay awake throughout, then, uh, you know, maybe there's a case that consciousness is going to be preserved by this process and you'll end up with consciousness at the other end. So I guess I'd say to you, if you're worried about these, uh, these, uh, super, these machines at the other end, uh, being conscious, well, upload yourself slowly and gradually and observe your consciousness carefully and see what happens en route. Well, that's interesting. Do you think that solves the um, problem, I guess, first introduced by Derek Parfit, the, the teletransporter problem? Because it, it seems like uploading has always suggested that it, it could just be a matter of copying yourself and then being killed, right? So you, you, the, 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 the normal notion of uploading is you do a, a, we have cracked the neural code, we can now read out every human mind onto some dura, more durable substrate now in the matrix or now on our, you know, one of Amazon's servers. And so you can back up your mind and yet the experience of, of, of having it backed up would just be, it seems, being told, you know, congratulations, Mr. Chalmers, your mind has been successfully backed up. Now you you don't need your meat body anymore. How would that be any different from a murder? And what, what you seem to have sketched out here is a process whereby we could gradually integrate our minds by migrating, you know, one functional neuron at a time into the cloud. And if at any point in that process, the lights seem to be going out, well, then we could stop it, presumably. 
but that's so that that's it's an interesting notion of kind of bridging what it's like to be us with what it's like to be in in on some other substrate and removing the fear that it could just all be you know it, it could just all be a matter of of unconscious information processing on, on the other side yeah i think there are actually two distinct worries about uploading when people think about uh you know loading their brain onto a computer one worry about the uploaded version is will it be conscious will there be anyone at home there at all will the lights be on and then the second worry is will it be me i mean you could in principle have take independent lines on this hold that yes it will be conscious but it still won't be me it'll just be a duplicate of me like making a, a twin of me in the next room one of these corresponds to the philosophical problem of consciousness the other one corresponds to the philosophical problem of personal identity as which you know, as Parfit talks about with his discussion of the teletransporter but i think this line of doing it gradually can at least has some bearing on both of these uh, both of these worries if you just create a duplicate of me next door then it's very tempting to think it's someone but it's not me but if it's my brain throughout and the old neurons get destroyed and replaced by by silicon chips and it's just one and i stay conscious throughout so it's a continuing stream of consciousness it's at least harder to uh, hold on to the idea or to find persuasive the idea that uh, that um, this being won't be me. I mean, I suppose it's possible. Maybe the meanness could gradually dwindle during this process. And likewise, you could take the line that maybe the consciousness would gradually dwindle during this process, and we'd just be left with functional duplicates at the other end, um, responding normally, but without any consciousness and without being me. I mean, it's hard to be philosophically certain of these things, but I suspect that at least the first the first few times, if I'm ever going to do this, then um, you know, the first time I'm going to want it to be uh, want it to be uh, the the gradual way. And I mean, you can although it's interesting, you can kind of if the engineering works well enough, and if the simulations are good enough, we know what the simulations are going to say at the other end. If they're at least good simulations of how we are now, they're going to say, "Oh, I'm still conscious. I'm still here because that's what I say now." So, you know, there's a, there, I suppose if you're worried that this process is going to produce a whole lot of beings who are not me and who are still zombies, and you're still going to have that, that worry. But I do predict that having a few people go through this process is going to be very persuasive to the rest of us. Yeah, but the thing is, if, if you, they do it in a way that's safe, which is to say they do it in a way where they maintain their physical body in case the process goes wrong, well, then they've done it in, the, in precisely the way where under Parfit, it'll be clear it's not them on the other side. So if you maintain your physical brain and you migrate, you know, one, you know, one bit at a time and you get an intact copy of yourself, well, then it'll, it will be a copy of yourself with a, with a different point of view. And a, even though it has identical memories to, to your own, it's now, I mean, I, I'm convinced that at least on, on that description of the teletransporter, a copy of yourself really is just a copy. I mean, you're you're uh, about to be murdered, and the, the the man on Mars, who is the exact copy of you, having had all the, the the information in your brain and body read out and sent to Mars and reassembled into your doppelganger, that is just a another person who is who is functionally more or less your equivalent on Mars. But if you if you do it again, this just this, this restates Parfit's conundrum whereas if you if you do it the way you're describing where you don't maintain yourself even if perhaps you could reverse the process if you if you didn't like what was happening but if you, if if once the migration is complete you are all in all on the server and your your 
you know, the monkey has been left behind, then it, there's a compelling case for it to, to be you. And yet, if you don't do that and you, and you, stay, you, you, you remain as you are now outside the matrix and are simply informed that the, the copy is, is, in, is perfect, whether or not it's conscious, as you say, there's still going to be a, a very strong sense, I think an inescapable sense that, you know, that's just another person. Yeah. I mean, I think sociologically, it's um, probably, who knows what's going to happen first, but probably it's going to be brain scans and backups that, um, you know, well, maybe it's going to turn out the best way to create these really convincing downloads is by destructively destroying the brain, a brain and then scanning it. Maybe we'll do it first in, you know, worms and mice and so on. But if it ever happens to a human, I don't know, maybe the first volunteer would be someone who volunteers to probably the first human case I predict is going to be a backup. You scan the brain, you keep the original brain around, and then you make a simulated copy, and then you activate the simulation. And if it's a good enough simulation, I suspect we're going to have two reactions. One, yes, that is a person. They're really talking. There's really probably some kind of consciousness there. But also at the same time, that is not the same being as the original. Because presumably the original and this new person will be able to have a will be able to have a conversation and we'll say, okay, well these are like twins, but this is the old one, this is the uh, the new one. So if that's the way that this technology gets introduced, I suspect we may end up going in the direction of thinking that these uh, these copy beings are yes conscious, but no distinct from the original. And th there is then an interesting question sociologically about whether people are going to be willing to go through things like the continuous uploading process. I mean, I think probably what will happen is, what could happen is a few of us will start just upgrading bits of our brain with silicon components and say, hey, this seems fine. I'm still here. And then you keep doing that and you'll eventually get to fully silicon systems and people will still take the attitude that we're still here. Then the philosophical and sociological question is going to be, can you justify drawing a distinction between what happens in the case of a straight out copy? And what happens in the case of a gradual copy? For example, we have two classes of silicon beings in our society. The ones which are just copies, which have a much more negligible, let's say, legal and ethical status, and the ones which correspond to transformed versions of the original, which have a higher status. That, might, that situation might come to seem untenable, and I don't really have any clear grip on how well this would play out. But I think we're going to need some philosophers around to figure it out. Yeah, well, that's interesting. That the idea that if if you copied your mind, as so your mind is your data. If any if anything is your data, your mind is is your data. That you back up, but if the mere backing it up creates a conscious copy of yourself, do you have the right to delete that copy? I mean, are you you are you performing a murder? It seems you would be. I think uncontroversially, if. In fact, this being is just as conscious as you are and has all your memories and all your hopes and dreams and aspirations. Yeah, maybe our intuitions are a bit different depending on whether the copy has been activated yet. If it's just, if it's just a record on a disk and it's never yet produced any consciousness, it's just kind of waiting, waiting to be activated, maybe we can delete it. But the moment it's actually been conscious and maybe started going in its own directions and you know, got a moment of input and thought its own thought, then now it's its own being. And uh, at this point, I think, yeah, certainly once it's conscious, the thought that you can just deactivate it, well, that's, that's killing a conscious being. And, you know, suddenly these beings have to be admitted into our moral circle of concern. Well, the idea that we would proceed based on just merely augmenting our minds or repairing damaged parts of our brains 
Actually, I've heard Elon Musk express this idea as a way of constraining the, actually as a way of of solving the control problem in some sense, that we're going to be the limbic systems of these of these new minds. And our own va- our own values will be playing a role at least in directing the values of these machines. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if that idea originates with him or if, or if he's was just restating something someone else had said. I guess one concern I have there though is that it seems like I mean so so doing that is more or less synonymous with having reached something like a completed neural si- neural science. We've 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 cracked the code at least to the point where we can seamlessly augment ourselves and give ourselves more mind and then explore the landscape that that these bigger brains open to us but it seems like there may just it may just be an easier problem to solve to to build functionally super intelligent ai without having solved that bridging problem to the human brain, and that's going to be done first by definition because it's easier, and because there's at least people would imagine people who are not taking the control problem or the safety problem seriously. There's an immense amount of wealth, in fact, a kind of a winner-take-all scenario that awaits anyone who can build such a system. So we're going to get the super intelligent AI first before we can plug our brains into it and become its limbic system. Yeah, I've heard all kinds of arguments about which one is actually going to be first. I mean, there are these two research projects designing a totally new AI or sort of reverse engineering ourselves. Um, you know, there are considerations on both sides. If uh, certainly the AI system, AI project will be much less constrained by, you know, the limits of science and engineering technology with respect to brains. On the other hand, the brain provides a working system we've got here right now. You might take the view that if these brain activity mapping projects develop enough, then in a, you know in a couple of decades we'll have a working map of the brain, uh, connect all the connections between them, and maybe even understanding the workings of individual neurons. At some point, we'll get to the the point of being able to you know record record all that onto a computer and simulate it. Now, of course, there could be intermediate points, which is actually where we are right now with the worm, C. elegans, has 302 neurons, and we've mapped all the, uh, all the connections between them um, in a perfect map, but we still can't get a simulation to work because we don't understand the principles of how all the components work well enough. So, but you can imagine a future where in, say, 30 years' time, we understand the, both the mechanisms and the connections well enough just to scan a brain and activate it well before we're in a position to actually design a new AI for scrap from scratch. So I think it's actually an open question which one will come first. But I do suspect that which one comes first is going to make a big difference to what happens after that. I find myself kind of hoping that maybe it'll be the, uh, the brain-based version that comes first because that ends up looking potentially like a, a future more friendly to uh, human beings. And I've, so, I've got enough self-interest that, well, I've got enough self-interest I hold out a little sliver of hope that I may actually be there, and well, if not me, then at least some relatives or conspecifics or, or something. But give it, give it a few decades, and you know, maybe I still hold out a, a sliver that some vote, that I could eventually be there and upload myself eventually. Well, listen, David, it's been fascinating to talk to you. I really uh, appreciate your your time that you've been so generous with. Do you, where can people find more about you? Where do, where do you want to point people online to, to read your work and, and interact with you? Oh, I have a, uh, a website. Um, 
it's conch.net, the first five letters of consciousness. I just do a Google search on my name and there's all kinds of articles there. If people are interested in following up the ideas about consciousness, probably my old book, The Conscious Mind, is the best place to, to start. Although there's also a, there's a TED talk I gave recently and a, an article in Scientific American from a while back. Anyway, those can all be found via my website. I should also mention on this last topic of AI, we're having a conference on the ethics of artificial intelligence at NYU, New York University, in the fall, at which all these people are going to be coming along. Uh, Nick Bostrom and Demis Hassabis, who just designed the Go program that, that, won, the, uh, that won the big uh, showdown there, and uh, Eliezer Yudkowsky, and a number of philosophers who work on ethics, a um, number of principles from AI, all coming together to, to figure out some of these, uh, or to at least talk about and see what we can do and figure, figure out some of these difficult ethical issues about AI, because I think it's a place where both philosophers and technologists and scientists can all come together. And it's a place where, you know, the issues may have a huge impact on what happens next. Nice, nice. Well, maybe I should uh, go to that. What, what are the dates of that? Um, it'll be mid-October. I think it's looking, either the 14th or the 21st. We're just narrowing down the, uh, the date now. But boy, yeah, it'd be, it'd be great to have you there. Yeah, that's great. Well, uh, thank you for con continuing that particular conversation, because I'm, I'm in touch with uh, Eliezer, and I'm just amazed at how difficult it is for people, even myself, frankly, to emotionally grasp the implications here. It's like, it's, 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 it's hard to see. I, I, I think most people's default sense is that this is truly much ado about nothing. It's, it's basically a, a, a grandiose version of the Y2K problem, where you had a bunch of techies worrying about something that when the, the calendar changed, nothing much happened. And I feel like people are assuming that's the case here, and it, it does not seem like a safe assumption. So I'm, I'm very happy that you're continuing the conversation on this topic, because it's, it's going to be more and more pressing to get our heads straight around this. Even if there's only a 10% chance that you know, something like this is going to happen, then boy, we should be at least giving 10% of our heads to, to worrying about this, so to speak, because the consequences are so enormous. So yeah, I don't really understand the dismissive attitude. It's got a science fictional flavor here, but it just seems to be there's clearly a... a concern here that everyone ought to at least be uh, ought to at least be thinking about. I mean, people get distracted by time frames. Is it going to happen in 10 years? Probably not. Um, but even if it's going to happen in 50 or 60 years, we should be, uh, or 100 years, it's something we need to be thinking about. Yeah. The, the, the most troublesome aspect of it for me is that many people who really should know better, many people who are even doing the work, seem to hold up the, the time frame dismissal as somehow relevant. You know, the people who think it's not going to happen in 10 years, but really are not at all confident that it won't happen in 50, seem to think that that, that uh, means that there's, there's nothing to think about in the meantime, which is, which is crazy given how quickly a decade passes. Yeah, maybe it's a little bit unfortunate that uh, Ray Kurzweil, who sort of first popularized this idea for a lot of people, called his book, The Singularity is Near. And a whole lot of people focus on the near part and say, no, it's not near, it's only in the in the middle distance. But I think well, the idea of the singularity here, whether it's near or far, is a sufficiently important one that we really need to be, uh, really need to be, uh, be thinking about it. And, you know, we're not in a position to predict also whether, exactly when it's going to happen. So no one's saying devote as much resources to as many resources to this as we're devoting, say, to climate change. But even if we devoted 1% as many resources as are being devoted to, uh, to, uh, to climate change, that would still be a, you know, a huge uh, increase on what there is 
now. And I think maybe you could justify at least some minimal level of concern. Well, listen, David, it's been a pleasure. And um, I hope our paths cross in person soon. Uh, we, we share uh, so many interests and it's, it's really been great to talk to you. Yeah, it'd be great to, great to meet and talk one of these days. Yeah, yeah. Well, best of luck with everything. Thanks. Same to you. Take care. Cheers. If you find this podcast valuable, there are many ways you can support it. You can review it on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you happen to listen to it. You can share it on social media with your friends. You can blog about it or discuss it on your own podcast. Or you can support it directly. And you can do this by subscribing through my website. That's samharris.org. And there you'll find subscriber-only content, which includes my Ask Me Anything episodes. You'll also get access to advanced tickets to my live events as well as streaming video of some of these events. And you also get to hear the bonus questions from many of these interviews. All of these things and more you'll find on my website at samharris.org. Thank you for your support of the show. It's listeners like you that make all of this possible.